Spring is in the air, flowers are blooming, and I'm starting to get my garden together. I hope you are too. So it's good to know that when you forget to water plants for a couple of days and they start to droop, it turns out they do something else when they need water. They cry for help. Well, not literally, but new research finds that plants make noise when they're stressed. Joining me to talk about this and other science news of the week is Rachel Feltman, editor-at-large at Popular Science and host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, based in Jersey City, New Jersey. Rachel, this may be the weirdest thing I learned this <laughs> week. Yeah, it's um, it's a fun one and, and kind of a disturbing one in, in a roundabout way, I guess. Um, Yes, it turns out that when plants are stressed, uh, most frequently when they're deprived of water, they make sounds. You could say they scream. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. So even though the sounds are normally not something we can hear, the researchers, they downsampled this sound to a range we can hear. And let's take a brief listen. Wow. It's either... Sounds like either bad Morse code or somebody hunting typing there. Yeah, yeah, or popping bubble wrap really furiously. Yes. Uh, Yeah, researchers had known for a while that plants uh, produce some amount of vibration when they're really drought stressed uh, from this process called cavitation. It's basically when air bubbles form and collapse in the plant's vascular tissue. It's the same phenomenon that like makes a noise when you crack your knuckles, actually. Uh, But they had only picked it up by like placing sensors directly on the plant. And this is the first time that scientists have shown that like it produces uh, it projects sound waves (laughs) that, you know, something can hear it, not humans, but probably insects uh, and maybe even like mice and bats. Really? So what plants are we talking about here? So the main study was on tomato plants and tobacco plants, but that's really just because they're um, they're very good uh, cultivars to study in a lab. The researchers did some like preliminary work on wheat, corn, cacti, and grapevines, and those all also emitted sounds. So it seems like this is probably like a pretty universal phenomenon. And we don't know why this happens. It's not really a, a cry for help, is it? I mean, as we would normally think of it. <laughs> no, fortunately, um, there there is no reason to think that this is actually a cry of anguish. It's it's probably kind of a uh, an accident of a a physical phenomenon that happens when plants are you know lacking water or otherwise experiencing distress. Uh, but the researchers do point out that just because the plants aren't doing it consciously doesn't mean it's not an important signal to the animals that can hear it. And it's also a signal that we could learn to listen to. They actually trained an AI to like pretty reliably uh, detect how stressed out the plants were from a drought perspective by uh, listening for these pops. Yeah. Our next story brings us to a creature that a lot of people don't like to talk about. <laughs> I mean, cockroaches, right? <laughs> Turn- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about weird. It turns out that cockroaches are changing their sex lives And we are the reason why? Yes. And it's not the first time we've uh, interfered with uh, cockroach romance either. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, when a male roach targets a a female roach, uh, he offers a nuptial gift, uh, which is a great euphemistic phrase for uh, basically what is like a cluster of proteins, fats, and sugars. So it's kind of like giving a date some chocolates. 
And, you know, while the female is uh, enjoying that gift, the mating starts to occur. Um, And actually, the poisoned roach baits that uh, so many of us in the New York City area rely on uh, use sweetened bait to sort of hijack this system. You know, roaches are uh, primed to look for sweet stuff because uh, it's part of their reproduction process, and now we use that to poison them. Um, And what happened is that some roaches started having this aversion to uh, glucose. More roaches were surviving and mating if they didn't want to seek out that sweetened bait. So now we're seeing roaches that don't like the sweet stuff. And at least in this one lab, we don't know if this has happened in the wild, by which I guess I mean like my kitchen, (laughs) Um, but (laughs) in the lab, some roaches have now developed a mutation um, that allows the males to produce this like other sweeter, um, slower metabolizing sugar. And the female roaches actually seem to prefer it, uh, including the ones that have this glucose aversion. So they're just um, getting sweeter to (laughs) get around our uh, poison bait traps. Wow. I know you've written a book called Been There, Done That about the history of sex. Yes. Do you have to upgrade your book now or write something else? (laughs) I mean, listen, I wish this had come out sooner. It would have been a great (laughs) addition. I do think it's a great reminder that, like, sex is not just a biological process. Uh, It's it's also uh, very much influenced by our environment and by, you know, environmental pressures and cultural pressures. So uh, obviously we are very different from roaches, but I think seeing the way that roach mating rituals change in response to uh, environmental pressures is a good reminder that like sex hasn't always been the way it is and it might not always be the way it is now. And we're still giving out boxes of chocolate, so that's still (laughs) going to happen. Let's go from a very small creature to a very a large one. And I'm talking here about elephants. We know that elephants are smart, right? But new research says not only are they smart, they have potentially self-domesticated. What does that mean? Yeah, so it's an evolutionary process, uh, really a hypothesis uh, of a process that leads to less aggressive and more pro-social individuals, which is just the technical term for basically making nice, (laughs) like having culture and community instead of fighting. Um, And so far, while scientists have discussed it in lots of animals, uh, it's only really been demonstrated in uh, humans and our very close relatives, uh, bonobos. Mm-hmm. And these are the only two species that have self-domesticated, the humans and bonobos. What, what makes elephants fit into this mold? What do they do that we're doing and the bonobos are doing? Yeah, so on the one hand, there's the behaviors, right? They show these really advanced traits, like they mourn their dead. They'll help out like sick and injured other elephants um, that can recognize themselves in mirrors. And they also just like culturally, they seem very empathetic. They're not aggressive. Um, They have a very long juvenile period and they play a lot. They're very curious. Um, They'll even like babysit each other. It's just a lot of very just community-based behaviors that are not super common in the animal kingdom. And uh, researchers are basically suggesting that this developed through sort of a selective reproductive process where you were more likely to successfully reproduce if you exhibited these kinds of behaviors. And they did actually show that elephants have a couple of genetic markers that are associated with domestication, but it's kind of an open question because the whole idea of self-domestication is like sort of almost 
as much of a philosophical question as it is a biological one. So uh-huh. it's sort of about just like how actively did like cultural shifts help shape the changes that we see in elephants versus um, other, you know, big, awesome animals. Yeah. Well, when they start playing mahjong or poker, we'll know they've totally <laughs> moved into it. Uh, hopefully nobody has uh, fallen asleep in our talk this morning because this next story is about possible problems that arise from sleep apnea. Tell us about this. This is pretty important. Yeah. So basically, you know, sleep apnea, there are a couple types. Uh, there's obstructive, which is where your throat muscles relax while you're, you sleep and it blocks your airways. And then there's central sleep apnea, which is less common, which is your where your brain kind of literally doesn't send the right signals to keep you breathing while you sleep. Either way, it's definitely an issue. You know, you're not getting enough oxygen in the night. And a lot of people um, either don't know they have it or don't realize that it's a big deal. And Traditionally, the thought has been that the big risk is um, developing heart disease because of that uh, sort of chronic low oxygenation through the night. And sometimes we see cognitive issues, but the idea has always been that these are a consequence of the heart problems. And now this very small preliminary study showed that otherwise healthy men with sleep apnea uh, who did not have uh, heart problems and sometimes even had quite mild sleep apnea were compared to men without it, they showed poor mental function in areas like judgment, impulse control, and even recognizing other people's feelings. Really? Wow. Yeah. And so, that's, a lot of, um, that's a lot of men we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Well, because uh, it's estimated that as many as 26% of adults in the U.S. age 30 to 70 have sleep apnea. And it's actually probably higher than that because, again, it happens while you're sleeping. So um, if you don't have a a partner like mine who said, uh, I noticed you've stopped breathing sometimes (laughs) in the night, (laughs) uh, which is how I finally went to get a sleep study done and got diagnosed, you can really just go a really long time not realizing it. So, you know, if you're feeling sleepy during the day or you know you snore, you should really see a doctor Mm. about that. Well, we'll we'll know why you're making bad judgments now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You gave us an excuse. Let's go back in time for our last story. It turns out that medieval monks recorded some of history's biggest volcanic eruptions accidentally. Tell us about that. (laughs) So researchers realized that when there's a lot of volcanic activity, you see changes in the sky because you have all of that particulate matter. So, you know, you can have crazy sunsets across the planet after a period of, of intense volcanic activity. And one of the ways that that can play out is in making uh, eclipses look particularly dark. And what's cool is that in many religious traditions, both in sort of like European medieval monks and in uh, sort of contemporary uh, religious and spiritual scholars in Asia, they cared a lot about eclipses because it, it seemed like a pretty significant cosmic event from a spiritual standpoint. And they took note of when they looked particularly freaky, you know, when they were like blood red or particularly dark. And so researchers realized that they could sort of cross-reference this with the uh, ice core data we have that sort of tells us when sediment from volcanic activity was uh, prevalent. And they've used that to sort of like confirm some periods of volcanic activity that these monks wouldn't have had any way of knowing about because they were not sitting there looking at a volcano as it erupted. 
Really interesting. You always bring us interesting stuff, Rachel. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Rachel Feltman, editor-at-large at Popular Science and host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. She's based in Jersey City, New Jersey.